In my mind, Sam Makora became an adventure motorcyclist at the age of 14. It was the day that he taped that map to his gas tank of his minibike and rode over 100 kilometers to see his girlfriend. That was the day he entered adventure motorcycling. Well, he's still an adventure motorcyclist, but he's also a sports scientist at the University of Kent in the UK. And as a scientist, Sam managed to marry his work with his favorite hobby, that's riding motorcycles. And he's done it in an effort to study the effects of fatigue on the body. You see, Sam draws some parallels between soldiers and motorcyclists, and he's used those connections to have the Minister of Defense of the UK fund his project. So... For his experiment, Sam signed on with Globebusters International Motorcycle Tours for a trip that goes from London, England to Beijing, China. Over 13,000 miles, that's almost 21,000 kilometers, Sam would be measuring the effects of fatigue on the riders. He managed to enlist the 14 other riders on the trip to be his guinea pigs, in Sam's words, to run experiments on and measure the effects of fatigue on their bodies. Each rider was equipped with various sensors that measure skin temperature and stress levels as they progressed throughout the adventure. They even went as far as swallowing a small pill that had a transmitter that would give the inside body temperature out to a receiver that Sam had with his equipment. And all the while, Sam would collect the data on his portable lab equipment as he too rode the adventure, with his lab equipment stuck in one pannier and his personal gear in the other. They completed the trip, Sam ran the data, and he came up with some really interesting facts about how our bodies respond to long-distance riding. On this episode, we'll talk with Sam about his findings. We'll talk about the use of caffeine as a stimulant to deal with fatigue, good or bad, the similarities between soldiers and motorcyclists, how long you should ride before you take a break, and whether or not we get fat when we ride our bikes. All this and more coming up next. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. This is Nick Sanders. I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. My name is Austin Vince. This is Rob Beach. I'm Rachel from Wonder on a Honda. This is Ed March. This is Glenn Hickstead. This is Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. This is Dave Barr. This is Alan Carl. This is Tiffany Coates. Hello, here is Herbert Schwartz. I'm Brett Tax. This is Zoe Cano. This is Nathan Millward. My name is Graham Hoskins. This is Joe Rust. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. It's Simon Pavey. Hi, this is Grant Johnson. This is Ted Simon. This is Carla King, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Today I'm speaking with Sam McCora, who is the Professor of Exercise Physiology at the University of Kent in the UK. And Sam took a trip with Globebusters Expeditions, a motorcycle trip that was 13,000 miles or 21,000 kilometers long from London, England to Beijing, China, all in the name of studying the effects of fatigue. And fatigue is something that, as a motorcycle rider, you want to be very aware of and certainly want to understand and manage. Well, today I hope you're going to learn a lot from this one. My name is Samuel Marcora. 
and I'm, uh, I was born in uh, between, very, very close to Lake Maggiore, near Milan, in the north of Italy, uh, 46 years ago. Uh, but I, I lived in the United Kingdom, where I work as a director of research for the School of Sport and Exercise Sciences at University of Kent. And yeah, of course, I, I teach students uh, how basically physiology is how the uh, body, if you like, respond and adapts to exercise and or to different stresses. And of course, as part of my job, I also do um, a lot of research and my specialty uh, research wise is fatigue in athletes, soldiers, but of course, also um, adventure motorcyclists. Now, before we jump right into this research that Sam has done, I first want to take you back to how Sam got started, because he's got a great story. And in my mind, it's the first person that I've come across with a story that has started him as an adventure rider at the age of 14. Yeah, well, I, I can vividly remember, if you like, my first adventure, motorbike adventure. Um, I was 14. Back in Italy, I had, I don't know if you guys in the States know about this, uh, Fantic Moto was uh, like an Italian brand that made uh, off-road motorcyclists. And this very famous one was called Caballero 50cc. So like, uh, like uh, you know, something that you could ride at 14 years old, but it, it was like a small motorcycle and enduro. And I remember um, vividly taping, a, 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 you know, a map uh, on, on the tank to go and visit my uh, girlfriend from basically from Milan to almost the top of Lake Maggiore. So it's about, I would say, 150 miles. But, you know, when you're, when you're 14 years old, it's your very first trip by yourself. And um, you couldn't go on the motorway, so you have to find all the way around the, the, the small roads. That was uh, my f- first adventure. And, and, you know, I've been a motorcyclist since then. And most of my riding has been... Um, in Europe, although I've also um, uh, been twice to Australia and also once to California, uh, but mainly has been kind of Western Europe. So it was um, my first, if you like, big adventure motorcycling trip, um, the expedition uh, from London to Beijing. I've never heard a story like that before of someone starting out. I mean, usually people start out on mini bikes. You know, they ride for a little bit, and that sort of gives them the bug. But you were an adventurer from the get-go. <laughs> That's really, yes. that, those are deep roots. Yes, absolutely. I, as I said, I, I still remember taping the, the map to, to the tank because I was so excited well, about the trip, but also about going and see the girlfriend, I guess, when you're 14. <laughs> <laughs> First experience. So yeah, it was uh, a great time. Being a professor of, of exercise um, physiology, you've managed to, to a way to, to bring adventure motorcycling, clearly a, a deep-rooted passion with you, into your work. And what is it about motorcycle riding that intrigued you enough to study fatigue using adventure motorcycles? Well, basically, I'm, as an exercise physiologist, I traditionally we are interested in, if you like, uh, uh, physical fatigue, you know, because athletes um, like in, you know, a marathon runner or a Tour de France cyclist, these kind of people, the focus has always been on, on the physical side of things. However, my research in the last, you know, uh, 10 years or so, I, I moved a lot into the role of the brain in limiting endurance performance in these athletes, uh, what we call basically mental fatigue which has an effect on endurance performance, but of course is also a massive problem in uh, uh, in, in uh, motorbike riders, especially uh, motorbike riders that do a very prolonged uh, riding. Because of course, riding a motorbike, it's a, it's a require 
sustained attention and that's one of the uh, what makes you uh, mentally fatigued if you have to concentrate and and pay attention to you know uh, the road condition other vehicles etc for you know hours um uh, naturally you will develop uh, what we call mental or cognitive fatigue and 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 therefore that's that's kind of the link with with my research and there's been a lot of research in obviously um, uh, car drivers, lorry drivers, air pilots, uh, soldiers, um, in terms of uh, mental fatigue, but absolutely very, very little research on motorbike riders. So I saw uh, a very interesting gap uh, in our knowledge and decided to try to fill that gap. So although mental fatigue may be similar from one thing to another, and you'd mentioned the, the fact that the soldier and the adventure motorcyclist may have things in, in common as far as mental fatigue goes, but as far as, there, although there's similarities between the two, what is what does adventure motorcycling give you to study that wasn't available in, in other things like the soldiers or other things that other people have studied? Well, it's it's... It's because it's, it's a, it gives you a variety of challenges, both from a physical point of view, although obviously, I mean, riding a motorbike, even riding it off-road uh, is not as challenging as a, as, a, as a marathon from a physical point of view. But still, you know, off-road ride, um, riding especially can be quite um, taxing on, on, on the body. But of course, there is a variety of, if you like, mental stressors uh, in an adventure motorcycle trip. One, of course, is the stress of riding a bike almost every day for many many hours um, and but there are also if you like other uh, if you like psychosocial or cultural stress so, so you know in in our case for example living in a group um, um having to deal with different cultures the the you know <laughs> the borders the, the the language barrier getting used to new food uh, getting used to your uh, mates on the trip um, and in, in, in the, actually, one, one thing that I found quite stressful, actually, because I, I used to do most of my riding in, in, in the past 15, 20 years uh, by myself, not as in a group. So for me, it was and so I could manage my schedule as I, as I liked. Um, but what I found very stressful, and I think a lot of people underestimate that when they take part in a... In, a, in an organized uh, expedition is that contrary to riding solo so that you know if you're tired you stop um, or you take a day break so you're not bound to any schedule actually having a schedule so having to be in a certain place every day which is like like a rally really i found that um quite stressful from a from a uh, psychological point of view compared to um you know riding solo so there are pros and cons in, in both but so overall all these stresses, physical and mental, are obviously very taxing on the individual. So for me, that I'm interested in fatigue, it, it's it's a perfect kind of a situation. And of course, in this specific trip, we also had the additional stress of hypoxia, which means uh, low oxygen um, uh, in, in in the atmosphere when we were in, in Tibet. So for me, it was also interesting to study uh, the effects of hypoxia on 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 physical and mental fatigue. You did a trip from London to Beijing to study this. Now, I, I, I sort of think some fun was planned in here as well, but let's call it work, Samuel. So you did this trip to collect this data. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, basically, I um, you know I looked um, around for uh, different expeditions, and I found, of course, uh, Globaster, which is a very reputable um, 
provider, but also they organized this very, very, from my point of view, perfect trip because it was it was long. It was through different um, uh, uh, road uh, conditions, and and of course crucial for me because I was very interested in that. It contained um, about two weeks at a very high altitude uh, in in Tibet. Um, so for me, it was very important to 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 have a trip that contained that. So basically, we yeah, we left in London. On at the end of April 2013, and it took about three months, and we arrived in in Beijing at the beginning of July. And basically, we went through, of course, Western Europe uh, down to Greece, and then we started to get into more adventurous um, parts of so uh, Albania, Greece, Turkey, um, and then uh, Georgia, and then we took a, a nice. Um, <laughs> Um, no, it's not a ferry actually, a cargo uh, um, across the Caspian Sea, and then we um, we went through basically all Central Asia. So um, took Mexican, um, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and then we went into uh, Xinjiang province in China, Kashgar, through Tibet, then Chengdu, uh, Xi'an, Beijing. Basically, to give you to give you like a very quick summary, so um, that was the that was the trip, um, and again a, a mixture of you know uh, nice roads in Europe to gravel roads to total off road, including deep sand in uh, in Tibet especially, um, and monsoons and really terrible terrible weather um, uh, in the last part of the of the trip uh, up to Beijing. So yeah, a variety of of conditions. Um, in in we we encountered, and the the mental fatigue I guess would be extreme in all of these because you're going through different countries, your border crossings, um, and then you've got altitude to study the hypoxia, and all this made this the the perfect trip for research. Yeah, yeah. I measure fatigue. Actually, I measure if like three because fatigue is a very generic term. So just to give an idea, what what. Uh, what I actually mean by fatigue and how I measured it. I actually measure three different kinds of fatigue, okay? The first one is muscle fatigue. So every morning I measured um, um, uh, ungrip strength. Uh, so with a, with a portable device, I measure how much force uh, one puts doing a maximal effort with the, with the ungrip. Uh, and then I measure it again in the evening after the, you know, the, the, the day ride. And the decline in uh, muscle force that you measure, it's, that's what we call muscle fatigue, okay? So like a, 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 we call it exercise. Let, 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 let's assume that, you know, riding a bike is exercise. So it's an exercise-induced reduction in muscle function. Um, the other thing I measure was uh, what I call cognitive fatigue. So I used, again, a portable um, uh, device to measure what is called is called psychomotor vigilance. So basically, is uh, you have ran, uh, random um, uh, stimuli at random intervals, and you have as soon as you see the stimuli, you have to press as quick as possible a, a button, and it measures the reaction time, and also it measures if you if you uh, lapses uh, so errors. For example, if you if you press too quickly uh, before the stimulus comes up, or more importantly, these lapses. And you do this for, for three minutes, again in the morning, and again uh, in the evening at the end of the, of the ride. And again, any decline in, uh, in cognitive function is, is a measure, objective measure of cognitive fatigue. 
The third kind of fatigue that I measure, which is subjective because it's measured with, with questionnaires, but I think it's, it's, it's still very, very important, is basically how, how tired um, the, the, the riders uh, felt um, uh, along the, you know, uh, at different time points of the expedition. And, and of course, that's, that's a very important uh, measure, even if it's a subjective one, because it's based on self-report, but it's a very important one. So three different kinds of fatigue. After collecting and finally analyzing the data, what were your conclusions? Actually, I still have to do the really full kind of uh, very deep uh, analysis for kind of scientific publication. Uh, I'll, I'll do this uh, during my sabbatical in a in, in few months' time. I really look forward to that. But I analyze basically all the main um, all the main parameters, which are actually are the ones that are um, of interest to your uh, to your listeners anyway. So basically, what we found is uh, well, surprisingly. Um, for example, we didn't find any um, muscle fatigue. So we actually found that over time, the, um, the strength of the ungrip muscle improved a little bit over the expedition, right? But uh, the, riding the motorbike all day didn't really affect the maximal strength of the ungrip muscle. And I think the reason is because uh, most of us were quite good riders. And as you know, if you are a good rider, you don't actually grip uh, the end of us very much. So you, you learn not to kind of uh, uh, grip it too hard. So um, if, if I measured, which is very difficult, of course, with portable equipment, if I measure fatigue of the leg muscles or the back muscles, I may have found something, but obviously it, wasn't, it was um, uh, impossible to measure it uh, during the expedition uh, because of the equipment required. But the, the ungrip muscle didn't actually fatigue uh, during, the, during the rides. If anything, strength improved a little bit over time. Um, in terms of cognitive fatigue, as expected, there was a significant decline in, in cognitive function due to fatigue. So at the end of the uh, day ride, uh, there was uh, not so much uh, mistakes, but there was like a, a slowing down basically of uh, reaction time. So people were, were not uh, able to respond to a, um, a random stimulus um, it, it very quickly. So there's kind of the psychomotor speed, we call it kind of uh, um, reduced quite, quite a lot. And, and, and again, as expected, that was even worse in altitude. So altitude had uh, two effects, reduced speed in general, but also made the fatigue worse. So when you're riding at altitude, the, the decline in psychomotor speed that you have uh, over during the day ride, it's more pronounced. Um, and this, this is the first time this has been really documented in motorbike riders. So and it, it basically shows that we are not immune to fatigue and similar attention to uh, fatigue should be given to motorbike riders as and not only to, you know, uh, lorry drivers, car drivers, uh, air pilots and, and other, and other uh, people. Um, also, uh, what was quite interesting is that, as you would expect, over the uh, three months of, of the expedition, there was a progressive increase in the, in the perception of fatigue, in the feelings of tiredness, um, which is, I guess, everybody has done long trip knows very well. But what was interesting is that at the same time, we had an improvement in fitness. So uh, the fatigue that accumulates 
uh, over time during an expedition was not caused by a, a, a reduction in physical fitness. Uh, because actually I measured it um, four times during the, uh, during before, during, and, and immediately at the end of the expedition. Physical fitness actually improved over time. And I'll tell you in a minute why. So the uh, feelings of fatigue, of if you like chronic fatigue that develop over time um, are likely to reflect mental rather than physical fatigue because actually physical function improved over the, over over time so um also that kind of uh, suggests that the me mental fatigue is a, is a, is an issue um in motorbike riders um, especially when you take it together with the results of the cognitive function test that I was telling you earlier well, well, one thing that I find interesting is that the physical fitness actually improved because a lot of times you people will will make reference to the fact that you're not getting any exercise when you're riding your yes. motorcycle. So that's an yes, interesting yes. one in itself. Yeah, it is interesting. Actually, uh, it's important for you to understand how we measure physical fitness. Okay, um, the the it's like the gold standard for kind of overall body body fitness is what we call a, a VO two max. Uh, which is a measure of max is called maximal oxygen consumption. It's a measure of, of the maximum amount of oxygen that your body can burn. Uh, can you so utilize during uh, doing exercise? We uh, I, I kind of obviously I couldn't measure it directly. I kind of estimated it with a with a submaximal test, which has been validated anyway. But you you get an estimation of somebody's um, or, uh, maximal oxygen consumption or VO2 max uh, in short. And basically that's the amount of oxygen that you, uh, maximal amount of oxygen that you can consume and divided by your body weight. Because of course we, in, mo in most activities, uh, we you know, working, running, you know, going up the stairs, we exercise against gravity. So uh, usually as a measure of fitness, you need to um, uh, normalize it by body weight. Also because obviously bigger people have bigger VO2, but uh, in absolute ways, but it doesn't necessarily mean they are fitter. It's just because they're bigger. So you, you divide it by body weight. So the reason why there was an improvement in fitness was uh, twofold. The first one is that I think on average, because I look at this a, a while ago, I think on average it was uh, four kilos, so about nine pounds uh, uh, weight loss in the in the subjects, uh, which was. Um, it was basically a combination of fat, but also uh, there was a, a, a mild loss of the, what we call fat-free mass. So basically muscle mass. Uh, but bo body weight was uh, uh, two, yeah, f five kilos on average. So about 11 pounds, 11, 12 pounds of uh, weight loss over the three months of, um, of the expedition. And obviously most of it is because of people didn't eat as much as they used to. Um, because of you know dif differences in food and uh, while, while you are at altitude you, you you get a little bit sick and a variety of things. So I think the most of the weight loss is actually not due to the exertion doing the motorcycle riding. Of course, during off road riding you do some physical exertion, but is that's not <laughs> uh, not enough to induce this kind of weight loss. Most of the weight loss I would suggest is was due to to uh, changes in in the diet. You also mentioned there the muscle atrophy. Um, wouldn't that be from lack of use? No, I think the main reason for the muscle atrophy, 
um, which, which was, was a slight one. I mean, it wasn't a massive thing. Most of the body weight was um, was uh, body weight loss was fat, but there was a, a decline in, in 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 muscle mass. And I think the main reason is again the fact that people um, reduce their intake of of food, but also I think the main reason is hypoxia. Uh, it's well described, for example, in, you know, people that, you know, they do um, uh, mountaineers, you know, climbers, that um, there is um, muscle loss induced by hypoxia. That's a well described phenomenon. And I think we, we, we suffer the same um, in, in terms of, uh, of muscle mass. Because, I mean, we were there, we were there for, you know, uh, for a couple of weeks. That's enough to induce uh, muscle loss. But they lost muscle mass, but they actually gained fitness in the end. Yeah, that's interesting because they, uh, well, part of the gaining fitness because we lost weight. So for the same maximum oxygen consumption, when you normalize it by weight, you kind of get fitter. But actually, importantly, even the absolute uh, maximal oxygen consumptions went up. And again, I think in part is due to the fact that we did a little bit of exercise when riding off-road. But again, I think the main reason is because uh, when you are at altitude, you have like, a, if you like, an, a natural doping. <laughs> Your body uh, start to produce. In, have you heard of EPO, which is a doping substance uh, no. used in cyclists? Yeah, I mean, uh, Lance Armstrong famously uh. used, well, this and many other things. But actually, that's a natural substance. It's not, uh, you, you know, you can inject it and get it as a drug, but your body is something that your body produces naturally if you are at altitude. So basically we had kind of some sort of a natural doping. Our body adapted to the high altitude by producing EPO that stimulated the production of uh, red blood cells. So our, if you like, the capacity of our blood to carry oxygen uh, was increased. And as a result, when we went down at uh, you know a sea level, our our maximum oxygen consumption was increased, and that combined, of course, with the with the, with the exercise of riding a motorbike, which at high altitude, and when it's in deep sand as it was in in, in many bits of of Tibet, then it becomes you know a true true intense exercise. Does personality type affect the the mental stress? I mean, you know, you'll get some people who get stressed very easily, and other people it just seems like nothing bothers them. Everything washes off of them. Are are they experiencing um, different levels? Or is that showing up in the results? Well, I didn't have you know to 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 test the the hypothesis that you uh, you just mentioned. You you would need bigger numbers. Um, uh, so I didn't differentiate people by kind of personality type or other other factors. There's not enough numbers really to do that kind of uh, uh, subgrouping, if you like. Um, and and of course there was variability. There was variability, like in any in anything, uh, between you know between people. But I would say that you know it the, the trend was pretty pretty constant. Okay, somebody fatigued more than others. Somebody suffered altitude more than others. Um, but you know. There wasn't anybody that kind of didn't have any fatigue, and somebody that was like uh, uh, in bed all day because it was knackered. I mean, there was there was um, variability, but the, the the trend was pretty pretty consistent across um, the thirteen riders. And did you find the through this research that there is an optimum riding time, or or is there some way that we can measure for ourselves to tell ourselves when to quit, to take a break? 
No, I mean, uh, okay. The problem is that what we know, mainly also from, from previous research, is that when you start to feel tired, in terms of your ability to uh, to react, for example, in terms of reaction time, usually it's 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 kind of already too late. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have really at the moment like 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 a, 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 a something that that uh, can tell you um, before it's too late that 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 you are fatigued. So there are some systems now, for example, in uh, in the cars. You know, for example, they look at data about how if you swayed you know with the with the wheel or uh, blinking you know whether you're closing the eyes very often or for mm, too prolonged and based on kind of computerized algorithms if they start to uh, based on this information start to see that you're getting tired or actually during the car you actually get sleepy which is kind of a little bit different from tiredness um for example on the dashboard there is a like a cup of coffee comes up uh, suggesting you know to take a break and, and have some coffee for example so you can buy you know a bmw or volkswagen cars this kind of thing there's no equivalent for motorbike riders in terms of is there like a, you know a, a certain amount of of time that you get fatigued and you should stop again it's 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 very variable because it depends how how demanding is the is the ride itself, and it's a combination of uh, how demanding it is, but also how boring it is. Because you can get fatigued for two reasons. Obviously, you need you know time you know to get fatigued. I mean, you don't get fatigued in five minutes. So you're talking about people that ride you know for several hours. But you can get fatigued basically for two reasons. If a ride is very demanding and prolonged, you get fatigued. You can also get fatigue because of what we call kind of understimulation. So when a, a very boring, you know, uh, motorway ride, where maybe it's not very demanding on your attention, you know, not as demanding as you know, uh, riding on gravel or things like that. But because you have understimulation, you get uh, fatigue for for a different for a different reason. But you still get fatigue. So it's difficult to to have a, 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 a set time because it depends on the condition of the ride. However, if you go from the literature, from the experiments that have been done with, with, the, with, the, with the car drivers, for example, they suggest to take um, a rest every two hours. And I think, to be honest, most motorbike riders do that anyway. If not, they, they should. Um, but the, it's, it's difficult, especially from my data, because they're not kind of experimental, uh, to, to say exactly how for a long one can ride because as i said depends a lot on the condition of the ride you know riding at you know uh, sixteen thousand feet in deep sun with a fully loaded gs in tibet is not the same as riding on an autobahn in germany um so it's it's a combination definitely when somebody feels tired is definitely the time to stop because you are already kind of beyond if you like a safety um, a safety limit so definitely don't ride when you feel tired. You should you should do something about it. So really, we should have some sort of regiment uh, of taking a break before we end up feeling tired. And I tend to agree with you. I think most riders do end up stopping. But there are times when uh, you get out. I mean, I know when I've uh, uh, ridden across the country here, there's stretches of the Trans-Canada that are just so long and boring, and all you want to do is get through it, and you, you tend to push yourself. So if you were to give advice for the average motorcycle rider, is there some sort of advice you can give that you could say, well, you know, I mean, you're saying every two hours, would that be a solid thing to say that we should be taking a break every two hours regardless? 
Yeah, I think it's 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 you know based on on on, on research on cars, especially when, if you're talking about this the kind of car you you were mentioning, so the kind of boring you know motorway riding. I would think that you know the the research has been done on car drivers applies pretty pretty well on the, on the on the motorbike riders. So I I would suggest every two hours is a good is a good way. But there are also other things you can do, which I. I was very surprised when I did the research. Uh, there's nothing on in scientific uh, literature, but I did some research on the internet about um, caffeine in, in and, and fatigue in motorbike riders, and I found surprisingly many, many, many websites, including, for example, the um, you know the Iron Butts Association website, or um, I think it's. Um, um, I think it's New South Wales kind of uh, police uh, website in Australia, but several websites actually su- um, suggesting against using caffeine to fight fatigue, which I found it, to be honest, personally, quite disturbing actually, uh, because there is a lot of research in many different populations uh, suggesting that uh, caffeine um, is, is probably the among natural substances, of course, it's probably the most effective thing you can do to fight uh, mental fatigue. And the uh, single subject experiment that I did on myself, of course, is only a preliminary one, but basically confirms all this massive amount of literature in other populations. Uh, but it confirms that even in motorbike riders can be beneficial because I, I have basically, in terms of reaction time, I, I basically eliminated the, the fatigue by taking uh, rather high doses. So I would maybe suggest everybody to take the kind of high doses that I took, but um, I basically eliminated the, 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 the cognitive fatigue that uh, I was experiencing in, in during the day that I was not taking caffeine. Um, so it's a, it seems to be very, very powerful. We need more studies in, uh, you know, more people to confirm this, but um, I would never, pers- personally, I would not, suggest against using caffeine um, because there, there's absolutely no evidence that caffeine has negative effects. Uh, what you should, what people, the mistakes that people do with caffeine is this, is that they, especially if, if you use uh, supplements, you know, where you can get a very high dose of caffeine, you know, in a, in a short period of time, um, is that they take it um, uh, without trying before the different dosages, they take too much uh, and they're not used to it. And also maybe they take it when they're not tired. And, and that can have some side effects. So you can get, you know, a bit too fidgety. You may have like your motor control of the bike maybe um, altered because um, uh, caffeine alter kind of neural transmission. So basically your, your nerve transmission basically becomes too fast, if you like. So you you, you might send a signal and, and, and your muscle and your, and your um, spinal cord responds more quickly than you're used to. Uh, but this is only if you're not, if you're not, uh, if you take high dose of caffeine, for example, when you're not really riding for a long time. But if you are going to have a long, a long trip, like the way I did it, after after lunch, I think it's a good time to get to start to have, uh, for example, regular coffees in order to fight the fatigue in, uh, during the afternoon riding. Um, I, I I would suggest that. 
I'm wondering if maybe the Iron Butt Association is saying don't use coffee. And I wasn't thinking of tablets that you're you're chewing, but um, just because it's a diuretic and you're having to, to stop all the time to go, and that that uh, of course de- dehydrates <laughs> yeah, you yeah. and wastes time. But I mean, what about yes. the what about the dehydration factor with caffeine? Well, actually, again, there's, there's been a lot of um, uh, speculation about that. And again, unless you take really extremely high doses, actually, and, and if you take caffeine with some liquids, like most people do with coffee or caffeinated drinks, um, basically the, the extra liquid that you get <laughs> to take caffeine uh, more than compensate for the extra, uh, for the diuretic effect. So you don't actually get dehydrated. Well, that that makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's it's still good, especially if you do off-road riding, um, uh, but also in general, you know, to make sure you are uh, hydrated, well hydrated. If you make sure that you you know you drink regularly, having some extra caffeine is not gonna you know dehydrate you to the point that it's, it's gonna do you more harm than good. But of course, you need to get used to. Um, make sure that you you drink. A lot of people don't drink enough. Yeah, and that can add to fatigue. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dehydration is uh, a well-known factor for both physical, but also more recently, there are some interesting data on uh, on mental fatigue. Having said that, recent data suggests it depends how how people people can get used to be dehydrated, right? So if you uh, if you're kind of chronically dehydrated, your body kind of adapts. It doesn't suffer from dehydration as much as people are used to drink a lot. So if you if you're used to drink a lot and then all of a sudden I you know um, I dehydrate you, I think because you 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 sweat a lot and you don't drink enough to replace the sweat and everything, then then you will have you know you'll be affected a lot. But if you kind of chronically dehydrated, like many people actually are, um, then you, you wouldn't suffer as much. Um, so again, it's, uh, it's always a bit more complicated, but yeah, in general, uh, make sure you're well hydrated, especially if you ride in the heat and, um, and, and off-road, you know, you have to make sure to, to drink regularly, even, even, even if you're not, you know, um, particularly thirsty, you know, it's a good, it's a good idea to, um, to drink. I'm, I'm not suggesting to drink like four liters, five liters, uh, of water, uh, you know, every day, because actually th- that can be harmful, but, you know, at least enough to kind of replace the, 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 the water loss that you have with exercise. I think that's a good, um, um, guideline if you like. So caffeine would be the only stimuli that you would, uh, condone. Yeah. Well, there are also drugs, but that those, that would be uh, prescription drugs. Um, uh, there are some, something like a, a stimulating effects on nicotine, but of course that that's for smoking. So I would definitely not advise <laughs> about that. So definitely not caffeine is definitely, um, uh, um, uh, what I would advise people can, you can find on the internet, you can find, uh, uh, different, you know, tables with the caffeine content of different kinds of coffee or um, caffeinated drinks or this chewing gum. And I would suggest as a, as a, you know, as a guideline to have a, a good effect, but without going too much, um, you know, without taking too much that is harmful. I would suggest people between three, uh, a minimum of three and a maximum of six milligrams per kilo per day. So, for example, in my case, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a big guy, I'm a 100 kilo, I was taking, and I was taking the highest, uh, you know, I was on the high side, I was taking 600 milligrams a day, which meant six chewing gums. 
I think uh, a Red Bull is about um, 120, if I remember correctly. Anyway, on the internet, you can find, uh, um, you know, uh, guidelines, uh, um, sorry, guidelines, uh, tables with, with uh, the caffeine content of all the major coffee, coffee chains and uh, Coca-Cola and all these kind of things. But really, we should be taking breaks because when you get into stimuli of any sort, I mean, especially you're talking Red Bull and those types of things, that there's other sort of health concerns that go along with those. Yeah, but I think it's uh, um, the, the major health concern of Red Bull or things like that is actually the sugar. I'm not suggesting actually to to have uh, a lot of people think that you, you you fight fatigue by having a lot of sugar. That's actually that's that's not true. Um, it actually may create some problems with because of um, you know up and down of, of sugar in the blood. Those those are not very good. It's better to keep it uh, as constant as possible. Um, so by for example, if you had um, um, you know Red Bull Light without the sugar, that's 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 fine. It's the the in the past caffeine was seen as a kind of a drug. Um, but actually, if you also look at the latest uh, nutritional guidelines for Americans, uh, they actually kind of raised a lot the amount of caffeine that actually they recommend because uh, there's been actually quite a lot of research recently. Actually, caffeine is, is useful for, for example, for um, preventing diabetes and other or even some uh, neurodegeneration. Uh, so there are some interesting caffeine is not as bad as many people think. Um, it's it's actually some it can have some uh, positive health effects. Uh, obviously, the main the main problem is that if you have a you know if you have for example high blood pressure, uh, which is uncontrolled, of course you shouldn't drink much caffeine. But it uh, it's uh, otherwise you know it's 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 safe to um, uh, to to consume. Uh, and if it wasn't, you know, there, there would be um, FDA <laughs> uh, restrictions and regulation on it. The reason why there aren't is because it's actually is actually quite safe. Well, the coffee growers it, will be happy to hear this episode yeah. of Adventure if, if Rider stay, Radio. It, as I said, if you are to your kind of regular um, uh, concern, if you add three to six milligrams, if you take three to six milligrams per kilo body weight, like for example in the afternoon when you know when you start to get tired, that's not gonna have. Um, in kind of healthy people, it's not going to have a, 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 a negative negative effect. But for example, if you take it in the morning when you're not particularly fatigued, then you know it may it may feel. And if you're not used to it, uh, never try things for the first time. You know, on their own. You know, try it at home maybe first. Um, like everything that you're not used to it may distract you, may have a negative effect. But actually, when you take it. When you start to become fatigued, actually, you don't have many side effects. The side effects is when you take them, when you take high dose of caffeine when, when you're not fatigued, if you know what I mean. Um, the way you use it, that is important. Caffeine itself is not um, a, bad, a bad thing. So what is three to six milligrams when we're talking about a cup of coffee? Oh, for example, for, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a, a strong and, you know, a, uh, for, depends again on the, for me to get six, because I'm heavy, but for a 70 kilo person, that would be about 200 milligrams. Yeah, I mean, a couple of, you know, um, a double espresso uh, will get you, will get you there. Double espresso. Okay, well, that's you've made me feel better too, Samuel, because you know I don't have to curb my coffee quite as much as I did before. I can say I spoke with a scientist, and he said it's good. Yeah. So, is there a time when you envision that this information that you have managed to collect um, that will change the way we ride? Meaning that are we going to find sensors on our motorcycles in the future? Are we going to? Is this going to sort of come a part of our life? These these computers that are monitoring our alertness and our ability to react. 
Um, there are um, several things that this research, first of all, this research clearly shows that um, fatigue is a, is a problem. You know, it, it provides, you know, hard scientific data that fatigue does indeed develop in motorbike riders, not only in, in people on, on four wheels or, or, or flying around. Um, so I think that, that I think that's important to focus attention a little bit from, from you know, authorities and etc. I think we need much more research to give uh, kind of a rider specific guidance on what to do about fatigue. But in terms of, um, if you like, what can happen in practice, for example, I give you I give you three examples. And but they, you know, there'd be more when you start to do research, new things come out. So you never know. But there are uh, three things. One could be that, uh, for example, we could give guidelines about, for example, the use of caffeine in motorbike riders based on um, further research. And for example, in Italy, for the car drivers, but in Italy, between midnight and five in the morning, if you go to a cafe on a motorway, okay, um, uh, espresso is free. Because it's it's kind of it's kind of uh, I think is a is an agreement with the uh, with the, with the with the organization that that manage the motorways. But basically, you you don't pay anything. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so it's a it's a it's a public policy, right? So that to to make sure that people you know drink if especially if they uh, drive at night where people get sleepy and accidents um, occur. Um, uh, so to encourage people to drink more coffee, and actually the, the, since this has been introduced, there's been a, a, a dramatic reduction in accidents in the night on motorways in Italy. So this this kind of thing. So I don't know. It could be that I don't know a free coffee for motorbike riders in the afternoon or something like that. I'm I don't for know, that because we don't ride at night, right? <laughs> we don't ride at night usually, but you know it could be something like that. Um, the other thing I'm very interested, especially for the the kind of ride you were mentioning earlier, kind of boring uh, motorway riding, you know, when you want to go quickly from a place to another, uh, usually maybe high speed on a motorway where you get a lot of noise. Um, what I want to investigate is the use of um, earplugs, which, of course, now they are advised in terms of protecting your you're here from damage, from you know the damage, uh, the, the long-term damage that uh, the noise can, uh, can 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 afflict on your on your on your ears. But there is no data to see whether using earplugs during long, you know, prolonged rides on a motorbike whether this reduces fatigue. If I if I manage to get funding and do the study to show that. Um, uh, wearing earplugs not only protects your ears from damage in the long term, but it's also good, you know, straight away to reduce your fatigue and therefore give you a, a safer ride. I think that would be maybe help uh, kind of motivate people to use it, more more people to use it because a lot of people don't um, use them. Uh, or maybe for, you know, uh, for the um, uh, helmet manufacturers, maybe to pay a little bit more attention to noise, which I think they still do, but, you know, there's there's very few completely quiet helmets around anyway. And, and the third one, in a way related to the helmets, is to develop system like sensors, such as the ones I was talking about for the cars, but uh, that work for motorbike riders. And I think it's a bit in the future, but the technology is, is, is getting there. I think it's actually not, not, it's not science fiction. Basically, the fact that we wear helmets is actually, um, a good thing because we could build 
it's called EEG, electroencephalography. So we could build uh, sensors in the helmet that can uh, record the electrical activity of the brain. And basically, we are working with colleagues at the electronic engineering department here at the University of Kent to analyze this data and see if you can find changes in the electrical activity of the brain that cannot precede fatigue. So that basically we could build uh, this sensor in the helmet and have basically an intelligent helmet that senses, even before you can feel it, that you're becoming fatigued and tells you, for example, to you know take a break, have caffeine, basically alerts you that you are fatigued even before you can actually perceive it, which would be a, a great thing. Because as I say, when, when you when you feel tired, is you're already in the kind of danger zone anyway. So it would be nice if we could find a way to kind of predict that in advance. And again, this is a bit more in the future, but but um, it's something we are we are working on. You mentioned the earplugs, and um, the, it's interesting because I had a helmet that uh, made a lot of noise. And when I found when I didn't ride with hel- with uh, earplugs in, that I f- after it took me a long time to understand this to to realize what it was. But I found myself feeling fatigued from the noise of the helmet, which I found rather surprising because it wasn't in this particular case. It wasn't real long rides. It was probably an hour or less. Yeah. The, again. As I said, there is actually a lot of research in fatigue, but unfortunately not in motorbike riders. That's a problem. I guess I'm one of the very few people that study this. But there is actually a lot of research, especially in kind of kind of occupational settings, so like workers in 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 industries where there is a lot of noise, and they actually measured fatigue in 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 people working in a with and in a noise environment with and without the earplugs. And, and they found that, you know, uh, without the earplugs, they were getting much more fatigue. So I am quite confident that that um, wearing earplugs will be beneficial, but I've, you still need to do research because the, if you're, the, the, the side effects of that, so you, you reduce the fatigue induced by the noise because basically you reduce the, the noise increases the cognitive demands of riding. So you reduce fatigue because you reduce the noise and therefore you reduce the cognitive demands of the riding. However, by reducing the noise, you also reduce the stimulation. um, And therefore you may get, if it's too quiet in a way, it may be that that you get understimulated, you get fatigued because you're not, you're bored and you're not stimulated. I don't know. So it's a balance of things. So I think it's 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 worth doing some studies before, um, before uh, before you know saying for certain that 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 earplugs reduce fatigue in motorbike riders. But I think it's very likely. And 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 I think it's anyway, it's a good idea to wear earplugs for kind of your. Uh, here health, but but um, I think if we demonstrate that uh, it can have a positive effect on fatigue, I think it will be, you know, an extra an extra motivation for riders to to use them. And maybe again, uh, if it's something that reduces accidents, and the government is you know is keen to to reduce accidents, motorbike riders, I don't know, there may be some uh, some uh, some um, you know uh, making it cheaper for people to buy them or um, things like that. Um, or even make them, I don't know, um, <laughs> I'm pretty liberal, so I don't like these things, but I don't know, maybe make them even uh, uh, mandatory to use, especially in the motorways, for example. 
Oh, yeah. that'll stand the hair up on a lot of people's necks. But it makes sense. I mean, because really to note, on fatigue, when you say it's dangerous and everyone understands it is, I mean, we're really talking about heightened dangers here. You know, when you start to get fatigued, maybe you just sort of run through what we're talking about when the body gets fatigued as far as the effects on a motorcycle rider. Yeah, I think actually, I think the major problem um, for most riders is the, the mental fatigue, is this slowing down basically of your reaction time and your um, ability to be kind of vigilant. For example, you know, the usual car at the, at the crossing, uh, they don't see you and they come out uh, unexpectedly. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. So that instead of, you know, reacting in, I don't know, 200 milliseconds, you're reacting in, in, in 350 uh, or, or that you don't, you, you realize that this person is pulling out um, unexpectedly kind of um, too late. So there is two, two components. One, recognizing that there's something going on and that can, that's, can be slowed down. But also once you have recognized that there is something, how, how quickly you, you respond to that. So it's a combination of, of, uh, of, of effects. Um, and, and so men, mental fatigue reduces actually both. Um, so it's, it's, it's not good. Um, of course, for the, for the off-road riding, uh, muscle fatigue, can be an issue and that's uh but we i think that's more of an issue for example on the legs and the and the uh, backs and shoulder and i thought i didn't i didn't measure that because i couldn't um uh but the, the good news is that you know uh you, you, the, uh, well it's not easy because it's not easy to train but with a good training program you can definitely reduce the the, the muscle fatigue uh during off-road riding so as soon as you you know you keep fit and and, and i would suggest um uh, primarily kind of uh, weight training. Um, I think that's that's you know that's going to help in terms of preventing the the muscle fatigue uh, associated with the kind of off road riding. But I think what's really kind of dangerous is the is the mental fatigue, um, and 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 we definitely need to 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 study um, mental fatigue motorbike riders a bit more in detail and and come up with some uh, recommendation which are based on on evidence. The only thing we didn't talk about was you'd mentioned that the the similarity, the parallel between the um, soldier and the bike rider. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think um, there are quite striking similarities, actually, <laughs> between motorbike riders and soldiers. Um, and, and so that's interesting to me because, you know, most of my research is actually um, either in kind of fatiguing kind of um, – endurance athletes or soldiers. I mean, most of, most of the funding comes from the Minister of Defense um, that funds me to find ways to reduce both physical and mental fatigue in, in soldiers. And the reason why I think there is a, a very strong uh, kind of parallel between us motorbike riders uh, and, and soldiers, especially, you know, adventure riders and soldiers, is this. First, most of the time, you know, think about soldiers going on, on a patrol, okay? Um, in, in Afghanistan, it's usually it's like a low level exertion, you know, physically, and, you know, they're not running all the time, you know, they're marching, they're walking around. So and also riding a motorbike off road, you know, if you're if you're moderately fit, it's equivalent to moderate intense exercise, not intense exercise. Um, so that so there is a similarity at that level. On the top of that, both both soldiers and motorbike riders, they have to wear a lot of kit. Um, which doesn't really help much, you know, including helmets that don't help very much in thermoregulation. You know, it, it really reduces the ability of the body to um, 
uh, you know, to dissipate it, uh, which is actually, so it's something that kind of, uh, we have in common. But of course, we have to wear this, um, uh, this, this, this gear to protect us, um, in our case from, you know, when we fall off, uh, in the case of the sword, if, you know, if there's, if, if there's somebody tried to shoot them. Um, the other thing is that being able to maintain focus and concentration uh, and, 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 and be alert for kind of unexpected things in the environment also is the same. So obviously we need to be careful because it could be, you know, a change, you know, something in the middle of the road, you know, the, the usual car driver pulling off uh, of a junction because they don't see us, etc. So we need to be alert for that. And the same, the soldier, they have to be alert for, you know, obviously the enemy, they have to be alert for signs of uh, improvised explosive devices because they don't want to step on that. Um, so we have to maintain this kind of vigilance um, for many, many hours uh, continuously. And I guess in a way, it's a, a, the sad similarity between us and the soldier is that if we make mistakes, for example, if you know we react too too slowly to a, the driver pulling off, um, uh, we may kind of fall off and you know we, we can die. And the same is for the soldier that you know if they don't recognize an improvised explosive device, they might end up dead or or losing their their limbs. So I think th these are the similarities. And of course, this is why the the Minister of Defense in Britain is is funding my research to reduce fatigue because they want to reduce the casualties. They want to reduce the um, uh, the risk of of getting all these um, you know terrible terrible things that happen to soldiers. But the same is obviously for motorbike riders. So um, yeah, hopefully I'll <laughs> get some funding and do more research. Samuel, so for this trip that you did um, with, when you collected all this data. How did you get the funding for that? Yeah, well, it was a combination of different sponsors. Of course, if you like, the main sponsor was, was the university. Um, uh, but also there were a variety of uh, people, organizations that helped me, and I would like to thank all of them. Of course, Globebusters was, you know, they they uh, really helped to kind of accommodate my my needs, which are not, you know, the the needs of the, uh, the usual client. Um, BMW uh, Motorrad UK, uh, they provided me with GS1200 uh, triple black, also Metal Mule, which provided the panniers. The other sponsor were um, uh, Military Gums, which is the the, the the company that produces this uh, caffeinated chewing gum. You, you know, they're available. Uh, you People can, can buy them. Also, um, Linton Instrumentation, which is a, a, a British company that, that uh, distributes uh, scientific equipment. They gave me kind of extra, extra equipment to make sure that I could uh, test uh, all the riders. I hope I haven't uh, missed anybody. And of course, a massive thank you to my guinea pigs, <laughs> basically the other riders on the expedition, which, you know, um, is fun. You know, when, when you do research with human beings, you, you often become friends with your own guinea pigs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, you know, without them, there wouldn't be any, any research. So I want to thank uh, all of them. Well, it's great information you're collecting and you're working with, and there's also loads of information on your blog, uh, adventure-motorcycling.blogspot.ca. Um, just a, a fantastic wealth of information on this, so um, people will certainly want to go there and have a look around. Samuel, thanks very much for coming on to Adventure Rider Radio and, and sharing your information. Thank you. I've been speaking with Samuel McCora, the Professor of Exercise Physiology at the University of Kent in the UK.
And you can find out more about Sam by visiting his blog at adventure-motorcycling.blogspot.ca. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. You really got to go there. There is loads of stuff. You just go page after page as he has uh, um, all kinds of information on here about fatigue and many other things to do with motorcycling. It's, It's certainly a motorcyclist read, although Sam says he still has to update it with the final results from his study. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles. Outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks very much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did making it, because I'll tell you, this one was really good. I learned a lot from Sam. Adventure Rider Radio is made possible through Canoe West Media, and special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. On this episode, you heard part of, anyway, the song called Neurosis of the Liver by Culla from the album Culla the Wild, and a link to them will be in our show notes. Don't forget to drop by our website, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Let's stay connected through social media. Send us your ideas, your information, anything you have for the show, send it off to us. We're always happy to hear. It's great to get the feedback, and we certainly have a lot going on on Facebook and Twitter. So follow us to see what's happening. Ted Simon, Jupiter's Travels, here on Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 